We often hear the expression that 9 out of 10 doctors recommend something. But what about that 10th doctor? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined today by author Dr. H. Eric Bender, co-author of the book, One Out of Ten Doctors. Dr. Bender, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how did you come up with the idea for the book? During early years of my medical training, this is going back to medical school, my first clinical rotations, I was looking through the computer system, trying to order a medication for a patient, and I stumbled upon leeches. And I was, first off, shocked I could order leeches in the hospital. But then I became more intrigued when I realized I could order them and place them on certain body parts, so left leg, right arm, you know, left arm, or whole body. And I was just fascinated all of a sudden with these unusual, intriguing medical treatments. And you started compiling a list of all these things over the years, I imagine. I did. I did. The list started growing from, from leeches to using arsenic to all kinds of animal byproducts people were swallowing or inserting. So it, it did grow over the years. So for our listeners, your book encompasses about 100 short chapters on a whole host of things. Who did you envision as your audience for this book? Do you envision it being clinicians or non-clinicians? I was actually hoping for, for both. And I really enjoy trying to teach about medicine and mental health. I'm a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist and forensic and adult psychiatrist. I enjoy teaching about mental health and medicine through fun ways. So I often give lectures at comic conventions, talk about the mental health of Batman and Superman. And this was just another way to get people in the lay audience to learn about medicine and for me to teach, but then also for clinicians, fellow physicians to learn about what is quite an interesting history of our field. So I, I think it's a great book for beaches. I think it's a great book for being on a plane because I think it reads real fast. It's, it's a really funny, very, very enjoyable book as a, as a reader. So several chapters talk about drinking urine, both by patients and physicians. Will you, would you elaborate a little bit about that for us? Yes. Uh, so urine has long been talked about as something people tend to drink when they're often deserted and just have no liquid, no water. People would often drink urine. But over the years, there's also groups of people that find urine is a restorative thing to drink, or people think that it, it helps replenish electrolytes because it's the natural human Gatorade in their mind, but it's not exactly functioning that way all the time. So we did see a lot of people, and I've, I've met people who they enjoy drinking their urine. And as physicians, once upon a time, that's how we diagnose things, correct? Yes. So the other, the tasting of urine by physicians to diagnose, say, diabetes when sugar was spilling out into urine, that was one way that we would detect that early on. So yes, there was there was a tasting of urine going on. I'm, I'm glad we've moved past that that exam technique, but that has been in our history. And there were a couple mentions in different chapters about the ingesting of worms, and there actually seemed to be some pretty good science behind that. Could you talk about that? There is, there is some, some pretty good science behind that. I think. I think there's some evidence to say that hookworms could potentially treat asthma, for instance, and there, it has been researched. There's been evidence to show that. The, the worms that really stuck with me, so to speak, were used often for self-infection. There were uh, hookworms used to actually treat gluten intolerance, and this was based on the uh, people of New Guinea having infestations of parasitic worms, but not having some of these problems like gluten intolerance. But what was interesting to me was that once the infection occurred, while people might not have issues with gluten anymore, the side effects such as upset stomach or flatulence were very similar to gluten intolerance. So I just didn't quite know what 
was better or not. And this was speaking to kind of this TH1, TH2 hygiene hypothesis thing? Yes. As far as I recall from the research we did, it is based in, in that science, in that basic research, yes. I, I was really amused by the story of St. Fiacra, the patron saint of hemorrhoids. Could you give us a little background uh, on this uh, unusual saint? Sure. So this saint was an Irish saint, and he was famous for a number of different things, but but St. Fiacra's stone in particular. So he, back in, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what his time frame was in terms of history when he was, but... He is the Irish patron saint of hemorrhoids, and the story goes he was a local bishop. The local bishop of the time offered Fiacre, who became the patron saint of gardeners, as much land as he could cultivate in one day, and Fiacre only had a small spade, but presumably spent quite a long time squatting with that small spade during those 24 hours and developed some pretty awful hemorrhoids. So legend says he sat on a stone, prayed for relief, and was cured. So now he has this stone where some say there are imprints of St. Fiacre's hemorrhoids. Uh, I, I did a little research myself. He's also the patron saint of taxicab drivers and sexually transmitted diseases. So Interesting. It, uh, that, will, that will help our li- <laughs> certain of our listeners decide uh, who they might be, uh, who they might be praying for. The, yes. the experiments you, you uh, wrote about on the handicapped, I thought were, were very interesting. Yes. There, so this actually started out as a chapter on, mental illness and experiments done, or almost not even experiments, these were treatments. So in the 1900s, Dr. Henry Cotton, who was the director of the New Jersey State Hospital in Trenton, had this theory of surgical bacteriology. He thought that mental illness came from infections of the teeth. And so he started to remove teeth and thinking this would remove the mental illness, proceeded to continue to do this if the mental illness persisted. When that didn't work, he then moved on to removing organs such as stomachs, uterus, ovaries, testicles. But what this uncovered in our research were other experiments on people that included handicapped or mentally challenged boys. For instance, there was in the 1950s a study in which Quaker Oats gave a grant to MIT to study nutrition in the hope that the results would kind of give them a leg up and get their name out there in the breakfast cereal world. And they, a group of boys were told they were going to be part of, a, of this experiment. They were part of a science club, but they were given oatmeal that contained radioactive tracers. And uh, there was a lawsuit that followed years later in the 1990s. And this was done on boys at a, at a state school that was, in fact, for, for people who had mental challenges. So since then, luckily, we've had federal regulations in place to have certain rights and to make sure that there's the welfare maintained of people called particularly vulnerable populations, and that includes children and those who are mentally disabled. But it's it's amazing that this stuff happened once upon a time, and, and I don't think they're the only stories that that's happened. No, they're, they're, they're definitely not. There were, there were a lot of very disturbing disturbing chapters, things we came across in the history of medicine, and somebody asked me, what is my favorite? I, I couldn't even use the word favorite. I think fascinating was just some of the things we came up with and heartbreaking, quite frankly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and we're talking with Dr. H. Eric Bender, author of One Out of Ten Doctor Recommends. So vampire facials, I heard that Kim Kardashian gets vampire facials, and I, I was fascinated by the chapter that, that it, it's a real thing, I guess. 
it is a real thing, and it's, it's, it's an interesting idea, too. So microscopic holes are poked in the face of whoever is getting this vampire facial. And what then occurs is the blood of that patient is spun down such that the plasma or the liquid part of the blood and the smaller platelets, which are full of growth factors, are distinctly separated. The plasma platelet component is placed on the patient's face, so it gets reabsorbed in the creation of new tissue. It's supposed to tighten up the face a bit. So you do see pictures of people with just blood all over their face kind of waiting as if they were just waiting for a suntan. Wow. Well, see, in radio, we don't have to worry so much about uh, <laughs> worry so much about that. Um, a couple other chapters. The Thai woman who had a whole business based on breast enlargement by slapping of breasts. Yes, and that actually there was, there was somebody practicing not far from where I have my own practice in the Bay Area who offered this Thai breast slapping. And she swears it's not just a, an illusion, but that breasts grow larger. What was interesting about that was not only do people want to do that, but people want to learn how to offer this treatment. And the fees she was charging to teach were just exorbitant, something in the 300,000s for one breast, and then double that, of course, because usually there are two breasts, and it was in the 700,000 range. I couldn't believe it as I did the research for this book. I was very fascinated to learn that heroin actually started as a medicinal. It did. It did. It was, it was quite popular, and it was used quite often, actually, as a treatment for cough. In fact, we have uh, in the book an advertisement showing cough syrups or cough suppressants that involved heroin or that had heroin as an ingredient. And over the years, it was clearly starting to become issue when people were having issues with addiction or issues with the side effects of using heroin continually. So whether that was withdrawal issues or what, but yes, heroin was an ingredient in cough suppressants for some time. So Dr. Bender, can you expand upon the chapter about thalidomide? I recall thalidomide from actually learning about it even in medical school. It was used as a drug in the 50s to help pregnant women with nausea, but what ended up happening was a really awful side effect that Babies born to women who'd used thalidomide, they had what were called flipper limbs, where the limbs had not developed completely or entirely. So it was not obviously a safe medication to use, and it had been recalled by 1962 and banned in most places. However, the maker of thalidomide refused to settle for years and blamed the birth effects on what he said were, quote, causes like nuclear fallout or botched home abortions. So there's just... Again, unbelievable stories as you, as you research medications and treatments over the years. And thalidomide, so what made it so toxic in, re in reading the chapter, is really something that's beneficial now in things like multiple myeloma. So thalidomide is something that you could prescribe in the United States, but you wouldn't be prescribing it for nausea for pregnant women. And it, actually, I don't think it got into the United States in the 60s, correct? Yeah, it was, it was overseas. Uh, I, I, I do think I've seen, I recall some pictures of what I believe were children born in America, but I'm not sure whether they had the medication prescribed to them here or if it was overseas, and then when the children were born, that that was an issue. It so. found its way in from Canada or Britain exactly. or something like that. So mercury had a very interesting chapter. Could you talk about that? Yes. So mercury, for some time it was believed that mercury was, was beneficial to people. But what we found over time is that there can be mercury poisoning and in fact, exposure to mercury 
ultimately causes tremors and mental illness. We saw this predominantly in a population, very unique population, hat makers. So those who made hats often developed mercury poisoning because of the mercury that they were working with that was in, in the material that they were using. What ended up happening was Matt of the Hatter became a popular term. So there's belief that Lewis Carroll used as inspiration for the Matt Hatter this idea that there's some mental illness or some issues that develop in hat makers, and it was due, in fact, to mercury. So, of course, there's concern now about mercury poisoning from certain vaccines or mercury poisoning from fish in the ocean. Now, obviously, the minuscule amount of mercury in vaccines is not harmful, and vaccines far outweigh that risk. But there's some people that still share concern about that. So of all these chapters, what was your personal favorite of all the stories? A couple things. The first thing was the mental health-related chapters. As a psychiatrist, I'm always fascinated with how we as a society or as a world think about mental health. And that idea of surgical bacteriology that I mentioned by Dr. Cotton in New Jersey, just pulling out organs that he believed were infected and causing mental illness, it's just awful to read about, but a fascinating dark chapter in the history of psychiatry. That was very fascinating to me. The other was was looking back at some of these just clearly sexist treatments as well. The idea that hysteria was something only women experienced, um, just the way that uh, men practiced medicine. I think those were the things that were most fascinating to me. You know, and even I, I thought the chapter was very interesting as a, as a psychiatrist about insulin, using insulin for like they used in A Beautiful Mind. Can, yeah. you, can you talk about, because I, I wasn't sure what I was watching in A Beautiful Mind, what they were doing. To right. So, so the idea of giving insulin was to treat psychosis or when people are hearing voices or seeing things or, or believing things that are not true. The idea was to induce an insulin almost an insulin coma or to give enough insulin to try to treat what was seen as psychosis. But of course, this is, this is not a cure, nor is it a treatment but that we use in order to treat psychosis. But the idea was to eventually induce a coma, and then hopefully the mental illness would be better. But that is, that is not something that we use or endorse today. So it was a, a wonderful book, you know, one out of 10 doctors. I would highly recommend it for someone who would like to really kind of see the really strange, bizarre side of medicine as it's been practiced the last 2,300 years. Dr. Bender, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. To hear this or any other programs in the Book Club series, please go to reachmd.com slash book club. 